Latitude is a monthly podcast brought to you by Nats, the UK's leading air traffic control company. In the show, we talk about current and prominent aviation topics. In this month's show, we're talking all about the weather. We'll be finding out what the most challenging conditions are to work with, what tools controllers and meteorologists use, and how safety is consistently maintained. Enjoy the show and find out more at nats.aero forward slash altitude. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Altitude. This is our monthly look at the world of aviation and air traffic control. Delighted to have you joining us today. Uh, I'm Fran Slater and I'm going to be your host for today and we're going to be talking about the weather. Um, the weather influences all our lives, doesn't it? Whether you just think about, oh, I wish I brought an umbrella with me or I should have put a coat on or Oh, I should have put sun cream on the kids this morning. Um, but for air traffic controllers, the weather can be a little bit of an obsession, a little bit more interesting than that. Whether it's rain, wind, snow, thunderstorms, all of those can conspire to make things more interesting for us, more complicated for us and turn over some of our well-planned activities. It creates a more challenging environment for us, sometimes a more complicated one. But maintaining safety is always our first priority, so we have to get it right. But why does a storm that happens in Athens leave you grounded in Glasgow? Um, what conditions do we worry about when we talk about the weather in air traffic? What you know, do we need to do and how do we find out about the weather? Um, we work very closely with the UK Met Office, the airports and the airlines to try and minimise the disruption for everyone. So how do we do that? And that's what we're going to talk about today. And I'm really delighted there are no two better people to help me talk about that today and to answer those questions than the two guests we have with us. I've got a big welcome to Emma Corrigan, who is the Ops Manager and Meteorologist with the UK Met Office, and also my colleague Kevin Morgan, who manages Network Operations Delivery. So hello to both of you two. Hi, Hi afternoon. Hey, nice to see you both. Um, Emma, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for inviting me today. It's really exciting to be here. Um, my name is Emma Corrigan. I've been in the UK Met Office since 2011. I started my career as a trainee forecaster um, and since qualifying, I spent a lot of my time focusing on the civil aviation industry, uh, in particular specialising in our work on site with customers, for example, yourselves at Nats, but also at Gatwick Airport and at EasyJet as well. Um, and yeah, since 2017, I've been uh, at Natsonic, leading the team of meteorologists based there and also uh, managing the service we provide. Um, that's making sure that we are bringing the latest uh, research innovation capabilities that the Met Office can bring into our service uh, for not only Nats, but also wide reaching into the UK civil aviation industry. Brilliant, thank you. And Kevin, tell us about you and what you do. Hi Fran, um, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to today. Um, my name's Kevin Morgan. I've been in Nats forever. I've done uh, 32 years this year. Um, I'm an air traffic controller by background, uh, but my current role is to manage the network ops delivery. That that uh, function uh, is a, a brilliant team based across uh, both our Swanwick and Presswick centres. And we're looking after the kind of operational demand and capacity balancing that we do through the London flow management position. Um, my team work H24, uh, 365 days days a year, and uh, I work very, very closely with, with Emma uh, and her team, as I do with you, Fran, and, and your team. And it might be known that I'm a little bit of a weather geek on the side as well, so I, I'm sure I get on Emma's nerves and her, and her team as well. But delighted to be here today to talk about the weather with you both. 
Brilliant, thanks very much. Uh, and I'm Fran, I'm Fran Slater. I've been a controller now for 23 years. I've been in Nats for 26 years, so not quite as long as Kev, but, but getting that way. Um, I'm a controller and a supervisor. That means I spend some of the time with a headset on talking to planes and telling them what to do and where to go. And I also spend some of the time managing those positions, making sure we have the right numbers of planes and the right people to work them in the right places, managing the traffic flows and making sure we're doing everything we need to do safely. So that's a little bit about us and our jobs. Um, Emma, tell me what's different about an aviation forecast to the normal forecast that the public gets. Yeah, I guess for the majority of people, they're more familiar with a public weather forecast and in particular, you know, a person standing in front of a screen, a map behind them talking about um, sunny spells, scattered showers, you know, quite quite general um, weather information. Um, but for, for aviation, um, we need to go into a bit more detail at times, um, particularly certain uh, weather criteria. So for, for wind, we talk about uh, wind in knots rather than miles per hour. We also give more uh, detail on the direction of the wind. Can that, that can have a really big, important um, impact on whether or not planes are able to, to land. Um, if it's you know, along the wrong way, then that's usually fine. But if it's um, at 90 degrees to the, to the direction of the runway, that can have a problem, particularly if it's a stormy, um, very, very strong wind event. Um, as well, we, you know, we give information on cloud, um, particularly how low it's going to be, whereas for, for the general public, you know, it's cloudy or it's not cloudy, but for aviation, you need to know how low that cloud is and maybe as well what type of cloud it is because there's thunderstorm clouds which have hazards associated with them, including uh, turbulence um, and icing, which can impact the, the efficiency and um, the ability to, to aircraft to handle those conditions as well. Yeah, and I remember what it was like in the days before we had you there. Um, um, Kevin, t tell me what you think it's like having the Met Office in with us now and how, how things worked beforehand. Yeah, well, it's been, it's been absolutely transformational for us um, getting the Met Office on site. Um, well, we've always had a strong relationship with the Met Office, but previously the, the forecasters were based uh, on the aviation desk in, in Exeter uh, at the Met Office there in their op centre. And the, the, the problem that we had was that, you know, quite understandably, they didn't understand the way our airspace was constructed and our procedures and, and, and how things worked. What bringing them on site has done is it meant that they now understand how we work. So they understand our traffic flows. They understand you know, the way we staff the ops room. They understand the things that cause us and, and our customers issues. So we're able to communicate you know, much more effectively. I know that there's been a lot of a lot of discussion around uh, data, you know, do we need more data on, on, on the weather? Do we want to exchange data with the Met Office? And actually, the beauty of having the forecasters on site is they're experts at interpreting that data, and now they can speak a little bit of air traffic, and, and, and your team and my team now can speak a little bit of Met Office. We've got that wonderful collaboration um, with them. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that's really important for us in aviation and in NATS is that consistency. You know, we can all look at a million and one apps. And, you know, if you look at enough apps, you'll find the weather you actually want. But whether it's the actual weather you're actually going to get is different. <laughs> so we've got that that fantastic relationship with the UK Met Office where they uh, give us a consistent uh, forecast and they're able to kind of tune their forecasts into into what we actually need to see to run the operation, you know, most importantly, safely, but also efficiently. Yeah, because we want to do our best all the time, don't we, to let everybody go where they want to do um, with no delays, getting where they want to get to, doing everything they can do. But, you know, sometimes the weather hampers us in what we do, doesn't it? So so that's that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what we mean 
with particularly severe weather from an ATC point of view, from an air traffic control point of view. Um, what do we think the most difficult things are to deal with? From my personal point of view, I know it's thunderstorms. I hate thunderstorms. Not, I don't care if the rain is here, that doesn't matter to me. If the thunderstorms are where my planes want to fly, that causes me a problem. So I want to know a little bit about where they're going to be, how they're going to move, what things are going to happen. So Emma, tell us what you know and what you think about when you think about severe weather and what you're going to be warning me of. Mm. Yeah, I, I like to break the weather up into uh, weather that impacts airports on the ground specifically, and then the weather that happens on route when a, a plane is, you know, flying from A to B. So for, for airports, the severe weather is particularly snow, uh, fog, strong winds, um, and the direction of the wind as well is, again, is very important. Um, uh, particularly kind of crosswinds. And uh, when we're talking about uh, weather en route where, where the plane is kind of cruising, it's thunderstorms, um, turbulence, potentially icing as well. Um, and it all depends on the thresholds and how severe it is. Um, depends on the aircraft type, depends on the airport, um, lots of nuances. And, you know, I think that's how the team based with uh, Nats and your teams at Sonic, um, understand and get to know those thresholds and, and those sensitivities. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about fog. Kevin, you know, when we get fog forecast or when we get low cloud forecast, that's obviously going to be a bit of a problem for us. So what are your thoughts from a network management point of view when we know the weather is going to be foggy? Yeah, fog fog is is difficult, and and I I think I'd be fair in saying Emma that it can be quite difficult to forecast um, very accurately as well. And there's a lot of local effects uh, around a particular airfield can can influence um, where the fog is going to form or whether it's going to stay and, and and that kind of stuff. Um, the the thing about about fog is it, it can severely affect the arrival rate, the amount of aircraft that a, an air, an airport can take um, at any one time, and and for us. The, the priority really is is to be able to plan that, plan the impact of, of how that's going to affect the the airport, the airlines, and and the the, tra the travelling public as well. So some of our um, procedures um, that we we have set up are based around these kind of thresholds that that Emma spoke about, and and with a certain forecast might lead us to take action ahead of the event, maybe even the day before the event. So if we know there was, you know, severe fog forecast at an airfield, we might apply some measures to re reduce the arrival into that airfield, um, you know, ahead of the event. And and what we've what we've learned from speaking to our customers and the airports is that planning is really important. Um, it's it's unforecast events that are really, really challenging for everybody. If we know something's coming, we can do something about, about it. And that's what we've learned with working with the Met Office, having them on site and, and, and say reaching out and speaking to our customers in a in a pre-tactical so a, a ahead of the event is that pre-planning is is extremely important um i think there's also some some other stuff that which which perhaps is not severe weather but can have a big impact on our operations so uh one of the one of the things that occurs in the summer can be runway temperature so you might think in the uk it's a generally a, a kind of a, a moderate climate but those runway surface temperatures can get really really hot and that can have an impact on 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 the operation as well um, also things like snow not just an impact on the airfield itself but also controllers getting into work uh, and, and and pilots getting you know that 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 uh, impact on the ground of people getting in things that perhaps people wouldn't wouldn't generally think of as an issue um, also i think you know certain certain countries have you know experience of very severe weather so uh, we we tend to find that pilots that 
originate or fly a lot in the in the US, they're very sensitive to severe turbulence because they have some monstrous cumulonimbus clouds that go really high and it can be really bumpy uh, and and they tend to get more um, more concern around turbulence in, in, in UK and Europe, whereas perhaps European based crews are not so uh, anxious about it because they're, they're, they're the the occurrence of severe turbulence is, is not as great over here. I mean, I've got got a friend in in um, in kind of the Dallas area telling me about tornadoes and hailstones the size of golf balls and stuff that we we generally don't have to deal with with that. So the weather across the globe is is very different and that has an impact on us as well. Absolutely. And I know we're going to get some Q&A later on. Some people are sending questions in advance and you're welcome to ask questions through if you want to. They'll come through to us later on and we'll answer them. But I know one of the things that we were asked about was, you know, what, why do we have to slow down the number of arrivals when it's foggy? And surely the planes can cope with it. And there are lots of different reasons why you might not be able to land as many aircraft at the same time when it is foggy. And that could be to do with the qualifications of the pilots or it could be to do with the systems on the aircraft. But actually, it's just like it's a little bit like driving a car in fog to, to steal someone else's analogy that I know from from Nats and he'll know when I say this but it's a little bit like driving on the motorway in fog if you drove on the motorway in fog at 70 miles an hour your chances of hitting something are greater and you can't see what's in front of you as much on the air uh, on the airfield on the ground when the aircraft are moving around and going back to their parking spaces and taxiing to and from the runway things just can't be seen as clearly and the pilots will just need to go that little bit slower and so we need to create probably bigger space between the arriving aircraft in order to make sure that they can land safely and vacate the runway and give enough space for the other departures and the other arrivals to happen so it, lots of different things affect it and we take all of those into account and then work out what a safe number of aircraft is to come in at that time to make sure that everything works. Um, I want to pick up on something you said earlier, I mean, you were talking a little bit about winds and crosswinds, particularly. Um, I know that um, for, for, for the non-aviation geeks out there, you know, aircraft much prefer to land and take off into the direction of the wind. It helps with the lift. It helps to keep the aircraft flying nice and stably. And like Kevin was just saying, if you get a lot of turbulence, it's very uncomfortable for the passengers. The pilots are, are not feeling as, as comfortable either, and it's not a great place to be. So we try and avoid all those things as much. Um, I guess the most recent example we had of sort of really windy conditions, stormy conditions was probably when we had uh, Storm Eunice earlier on this year. Emma, we, we're, and Kevin, were, were either of you on duty for that? Thankfully, no, <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I wasn't. I was actually trying to have a weekend in a, away in a, a shepherd's hut on the south coast, which I did delay by a day because um, it was not going to be uh, not going to be that great. But uh, I think uh, Emma was around and uh, could probably tell us a bit about how that forecast panned out. Yeah, I was. I was around um, in the lead up and also on the day itself. It was a it was a very busy week for the Met Office and the weather forecasters. Um, and also, I guess, a very busy time for uh, controllers and supervisors based at Nats. Um, it was a really interesting week. You know, we had two named storms um, named on Monday. So, you know, several several days in advance, giving good heads up notice to yourselves. Um, so we had Dudley and Eunice named on the Monday um, and ended up with Franklin again on, on the Sunday as well. So, you know, it was a very stormy week. Um, thinking about Eunice itself, it was coming through during the day, um, whereas Dudley was more of an evening overnight feature across the north. So you have a higher load of traffic during the day, so potentially more sensitivity as well. 
we saw widespread gusts of 50 to 60 knots. Um, the direction wasn't great. It was just off a southerly um, and there was wind shear at the surface as well. So very, very turbulent uh, approaches um, observed and seen. Um, Big Jet TV, isn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, that is exactly what I was just going to say. So again, the majority of runways, not all of them, but the majority of runways in the UK are aligned sort of approximately east-west. Kev, would you agree with that? I think so. You know, we prefer mostly for the winds to be from a westerly preference or an easterly preference. And when they are more crosswind, that's that's much more awkward. Um, we've actually got a video clip to, to just show and, and talk about. And perhaps, Kev, you can help me talk about this as we watch it up for you, um, of, of the radar recordings of some of the things that happened on uh, Storm Eunice Day. Yeah. Um, so let's see what happened on the day and what it looks like. I think um, I think whilst we're looking at that, I think one thing that that I found find amazing, and as I say, being somebody that's got an interest in the weather anyway, is how well some of these models, the Met models, pick up these storms. You know, they're they, they're not in existence. They're not in existence for a few days, and yet the model modelling was incredible. Yes, the track gets refined as you get closer and closer to the the time of op, uh, of of it happening. Uh, the other thing I think is really uh, articulated well, um, because we had three named storms during that one week, is the naming of the storms actually helps with the communication because you know the event you're talking about, you tie it up with that name. So I think that 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 proved well. And you can see on the radar recording, you see aircraft arriving into mainly Heathrow there. And sometimes they're not managing to get in and they're turning around and doing what's called a go around, which is, you know, as you've seen, maybe on Big Jet TV or when the plane can't actually safely put itself down on the ground or be put down by the pilots. And it's going around and coming around for another approach. And sometimes the aircraft are going around for another approach immediately. And sometimes they're going out to hold off for a little while maybe it's been very uncomfortable for the pilots and you know we have to remember as well at the time of Eunice that um, quite a lot of pilots hadn't been flying because of COVID so things were only just getting back to normal for them and it was a, a bigger shock I think to them and we were having to put in bigger space to give the aircraft a chance to try and get down on the ground and make sure that they could land safely and have plenty of room to roll out and reduce their speed if they needed to um, and and you can see the the difficulties that causes so Kevin tell me when, when we have aircraft going around and aircraft holding how does that affect what we do with the numbers of aircraft yeah so uh, i think that's that's a really good example to the question that was posed at the start around you know what why if there's fog in athens or is there a storm in athens why get delayed departing from glasgow so if you imagine you know any airfield in this instance we've got heathrow which you know could, could land 45 uh, aircraft a, a, an hour um in in benign conditions um you've already got a factor of some weather impacting it. So we know they're not going to be able to land 45 an hour because they need to stabilise on the approach a bit more. They might need a bit of a longer uh, longer track. So you imagine then you've reduced that by, by, by a figure and then you've got aircraft going around. So they're now adding to the number of aircraft you've got to try and try and land. And they're going in the in the hold. You could see them on the on the visualization there, kind of in that racetrack pattern just to the southeast of Heathrow. So you're you're constantly adding to that those numbers. So the, the best thing we can do, and this is what I was talking about earlier about the importance of planning, is that we can apply a measure across the whole of Europe that says, you know, at the moment we can't accept the normal number of flights into any particular airfield. So we have to reduce that rate. And so by communicating and applying that measure in advance, we can slow the number of aircraft down um, that, that arrive at the airport. Yes, it does mean some delays and it is the last resort we use. We don't we hate delaying flights, but it ensures there's a safe 
number of aircraft uh, arriving into an airfield. The other thing it does is it tries to reduce the amount of airborne holding that we do. Airborne holding, as you, you'll know, Fran, is, is quite workload intensive to manage. Uh, and obviously as an environmental impact, which we which we try to minimise as well. Yeah. And, and the trouble is, trouble is with a big storm like like Eunice and others we've had go through is that they're not just affecting one airfield. It's not sometimes you get like a thunderstorm that sits right over the top of an airfield and it can be just that airfield that's really affected. Eunice was widespread, particularly on the south. So a lot of your airfields are, are impacted. And if you just imagine the the kind of workload multiplier in the, all of those airports affected and all those flights go, going around and, and and sometimes having to divert, divert elsewhere, we have to really control the, the the flow of traffic into the UK, which is what my my team do on a daily basis to make sure that we can all cope with the amount of traffic that there is in, in the skies. Exactly. And then we as controllers will be looking after those aircraft when they're there and then we're able to cope with, you know, so when they do need to go around and come back and have a break or try again for the approach, we can fit them into the sequence. And if aircraft are struggling to land, they can talk to us about what other airfields they can go to, where they might be able to divert to, to make sure that they can land safely. Um, all the time, what we're trying to do is keep the operation safe and keep everyone moving the way they want to go and just make sure we can and do as much as we can for everybody from that point of view. Um, so safety is always our top priority but like you say Kev, you know we also want to reduce delays we don't like holding nobody wants to be held on the ground nobody wants to be having delays in the air and we're trying really hard as a company now especially to um, avoid the environmental impact wherever we can we need to, to try and reduce the, the amount of co2 out there and, and anything we can do to help that i think is is really really important um emma tell us a bit more about then how long you would be able to give us in advance about forecasting storms i know with Eunice you had quite a long time but that can vary can't it yeah, it all depends on the, the certainty in the forecast um, and there's various ways that us as forecasters and the Met Office work to, to quantify certainty um, we use various different types of model output um, any kind of small difference uh, differences at the beginning of a forecast um, and um, how much observation data we can bring in will greatly impact or um, make better the output of, of the model. So there are some situations where, you know, there's there's a lot of uncertainty in the initial um, start, starting conditions of, of the forecast model, which then spread over time will just, you know, grow even larger. So, you know, with, with Storm Eunice and, and Dudley, we had, you know, several days advance notice. But with Franklin, Franklin wasn't wasn't named until the Sunday. So, you know, it just shows the difference between just one week, the difference in, in certainty and therefore the ability to put that communication out there in terms of a potential storm and a potential disruption. And Emma, I think I think another difference highlighted another difference between perhaps the general public type forecast and, and aviation is we tend to use probabilities in in the aviation domain. So we'll you'll give us a forecast of the the probability of an event, whether it be you know fog or, or whatever that is, and then we take action based on the the severity or the likelihood of that that occurring, which is which is quite different from from the way that the the public forecast might work. Um, and and some of our procedures are already like pre agreed. So if there's a you know very high probability of an event fog event at an airfield, we might take action the day before. Uh, as I said, because a planned operation is is safer, it's more stable, it's more um, it, it's just easier for everybody to manage. Yeah, but not every storm gets named, Emma. So so why do we name storms just quickly? 
Uh, so the st storm naming convention came in about 2015 um, and it, it's really to more, more so so people can be aware that this is different from your normal everyday weather. Um, it's usually when we have uh, an amber or, or, you know, on the rare occasion, a red national severe weather warning in place. Um, so it's reached the level where there's going to be impact and people need to be aware. So, it, it, you know, it's in, to improve awareness and to minimise potential disruption or uh, impacts that people will see in day-to-day -day lives when they're out and about. Yeah. And, and, uh, am, I, am I right in saying that um, the Met Office is a joint thing with the with the Republic of Ireland and, and you, they're alternate between kind of Irish names and and the UK names, is that correct? Yeah, the the um, the kind of structure of it is kind of based off what the the US started doing with the tropical cyclones. Um, we we've kind of taken that as a kind of a good structure and um, alternate between um, male female names, and um, also um, we work with Met Erin and also um, KNMI, which is the Dutch Met um, service provider, and um, together. Um, the general public can put in their name requests and I don't know how it's done, but, you know, names get picked each season and, and different names are used each time. <laughs> not sure I've seen a storm, Kevin, but I don't think well, that, well, that would that would be like. I think that's that's a good point you, you make there Emma, about um, obviously the weather is not isolation in the UK and we do work quite closely with our European um, well, our European air traffic kind of providers as well as other European weather agencies, particularly in the summer. You know, the biggest risk for us in the summer is, is Fran's favourite sort of weather, as she's already described, thunderstorms. So you get these kind of strong convective um, uh, situations which can cause an awful lot of disruption for aviation. Um, and over the past few years, we've uh, we've been involved with uh, cross-border weather, which is kind of coordinated through Eurocontrol and different Met agencies across across Europe, because clearly the weather doesn't stop at our, our UK ge geographical boundary. It's spread across it. And, and that again, that coordinated approach across Europe gives massive benefits to the way we can kind of run the service and manage the service. Yeah, I particularly like with, I don't like thunderstorms at all. I hate thunderstorms because <laughs> they're very annoying. But what I like about having the Met Office with us now is that when you tell us about thunderstorms, you start to tell us where they're going to go, how quickly they're going to go there. So we can start to plan a little bit around our routes. One of the reasons I hate thunderstorms so much is it just does a sort of funneling effect on my traffic. No, generally aircraft don't want to fly through thunderstorms because I'm sure you'll talk more than I could Emma about it. But the thunderstorms will generally have sort of strong winds in them. They might have, you know, various bits of precipitation in them that could damage their aircraft, make it very uncomfortable to fly through. And, and so they want to go around the thunderstorms as much as possible. And so unfortunately, if everybody tries to get around the thunderstorms, they all want to go into the same piece of airspace, which can make it a little bit more complicated. It's a little bit like um, when you're driving on the motorway. I'm going back to my car driving again. But, it, you know, if you're driving on the motorway and there's four lanes and suddenly they have to close three lanes and everybody has to funnel into one, you get that big tailback and that big queue of everybody trying to fit through. And we're not in a position where we can fit all of those aircraft into that space at the same time. And if you imagine then the 3D version of that with layers of levels above it and layers of levels above it and above it, that we've got to try and make sure that that happens so that it is safe. So, um, you know, what what thunderstorm information can you give me, Emma? I think it depends on the situation. Um, if it's a kind of a, a band of heavy showers with thunderstorms in it, they generally um, are quite I wouldn't say easy to track, but generally 
um, something that we can track more easily. Whereas if it's um, pop-up showers that develop through through the day, then um, that could be more difficult. I use the analogy of like when you're boiling a pan of hot water and when it starts boiling, you see the, the bubbles come mm -hmm. up. You have no idea where those bubbles are going to be sometimes. It's a similar sort of things with thunderstorms. If you've got a, a nice hot summer day and you just see some showers starting to develop, it, it's kind of a very similar thing where you know it's going to get hot and warm and you know there's going to be showers develop. You just sometimes don't know exactly where those showers are going to be. Yeah, absolutely. I, and and yeah, but I think the really great thing is that when you see those develop, you give us an idea of the trajectories, the lines they're likely to take and how quickly you think they're likely to move and you keep that refreshed for us. And from a, a supervisory point of view, when I'm trying to manage the sectors and make sure that nobody's getting overloaded, um, I, I need to make sure that we can keep those sectors safe, knowing where that weather's going to be and how long it's going to be there for can make a significant difference, which is why sometimes we can let some routes flow quite freely, but sometimes we need to restrict others is that what you would say Kev? Yeah I would and I think something that might be interesting to people that that kind of um, just got a passing interest in this rather than us that are kind of uh, bread and butter every day is that you know generally when when the airspace is busy and we've got more more and more flights in it what we what we like to do is we like to split the sectors up into smaller and smaller bits of airspace and put more and more controllers in them we kind of we kind of split those sectors out because that enables us to manage more flights it doesn't work like that with weather because very often when you've got a big chunk of weather in your sector you've got aircraft going all around it avoiding it and, and very often they can they can stray quite a long way um, off their track so sometimes it's a bit counterintuitive but sometimes you actually combine sectors and chunks of airspace together because if you try to keep them um, separately the coordination between the different controllers in different pieces of airspace would be would be the constraining factor with workload so weather is quite different in terms of uh, of, of the management of, of airspace and demand than, than other other constraints that we have yeah and uh, are things getting worse um are we going to see more storms like Eunice and things like that with climate change what, what what's going to be different in the future and how does the Met Office prepare for that yeah so the Met Office not only does a lot of weather forecasting there's also uh climate research that the Met Office gets involved with and um, we have a big center called the Hadley Center with lots of climate researchers uh, specifically looking at climate change and what that may mean for industry like aviation and um last year we worked alongside a company called Aegis and also that was on behalf of Eurocontrol to look at what potentially could we see in the future and therefore how can the, the industry mitigate against that or, or make sure that's included in their resilience plans. Um, a, a couple of things were found in that report, some, some I suppose more negative, some potentially more positive. Um, so across Europe there'll be more airports at risk of flooding due to storm surges and sea level rise um particularly the the more local the smaller airports um and that's obviously potentially going to impact uh, tourism as well as day-to-day -day activities um there's also an aspect of storms becoming more frequent and more severe particularly across northern europe less so across southern europe um which is going to potentially increase the weather delays and also distance that aircraft have to travel around those storms to, to avoid those hazards associated with thunderstorms. Um, 
a few more positive things. I guess the, the changes in the jet stream would mean that um, transatlantic flights will reduce in duration. Not a huge amount, but it, you know, it's still um, slightly quicker, so using less fuel. Uh, and finally, with with the kind of general warming climate, the people are more likely potentially use the shoulder months either side of the peak summer as um, the opportunity to to use those those times to to go on holiday and and travel. Um, so we may see uh, an expanded summer season as well. Okay. So it's going to get more and more interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so um, we've got a, a question that's come in asking that, saying that weather and aviation obviously know no boundaries. That's that's a good good thing. I like that. Um, what activities are Nats and the Met Office undertaking to support coordination with counterparts in Europe? Kev, maybe you could talk about what we do with our European counterparts from an air traffic point of view. Yeah, sure. Great question. That um, I mentioned earlier that you know we we. we Get involved in the summer around the convective season around um you know uh sharing the not only the, the forecast data but the impact of that with our european colleagues but also um weather resilience so being resilient to these weather events is is a key thing and uh nats and the met office we participated in a in a weather resilience uh, conference with eurocontrol uh, a while ago um and we were able to share some of the techniques and best practice we use in our part of the european network for managing some of these 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 events and i'm really pleased to say that you know, some of the things that we present in the way we use and being rolled out in other airfields across Europe. So we're, we're kind of recognised as being, um, you know, uh, kind of pioneers in some of the, the techniques and tools that we, that we use. And it's only by bringing the Met Office really becoming part of our team. I mean, I, I guess I didn't mention that earlier on is that, yes, Emma and her team are based at Swanwick, but it, and, and yes, they're employed by the Met Office. But as you know, Fran, they're actually part of our team. You yeah, know, we we really much. we really think of them, and, and that's where the real benefit benefit comes. So some of the some of the tools and techniques that that we use, particularly around low visibility and, and forecast fog, means that the impact to our customers is is less than it would be if we just use standard techniques. So as as well as you know so sharing this information it's also sharing the the tools and techniques and best practice that we've developed um so other people can benefit from them too yeah and that's really important emma is there anything you want to add to that no i, I just think it's great that we we're able to collaborate with our met providers across europe um to help support um you know a wider reaching uh audience and yeah. making sure you know Thunderstorms don't stop at boundaries of countries. So, yeah, you know, yeah. we need to get that joined up forecast and story there. So, yeah, yeah. No, I think so we can all so, help each other. That's the best. Sometimes way I wish they did. When I see them coming up <laughs> over the French coast, I wish they did just bounce off the kind of UK <laughs> airspace boundary, but sadly they don't. No, unfortunately not. <laughs> so we talked a bit, a bit about what we would call sort of normal weather and severe weather for us. What about um, space weather? I'm, I'm not very clued up on space weather, but I know that Kev is and I'm sure that Emma is. So tell me a little bit about space weather. Emma, tell me a bit first. Yeah, so this is quite a, a new area, I suppose, of weather when it comes to um, thinking about it in, in, in the industry and also in, in people's operations. Um, there's been a real push, I suppose, in the last five, five years in particular to make sure that um, people are aware of it and people know, to do, know what to do when there is space weather. So um, 
the the sun follows a kind of a 10 11 year cycle um, we're just coming out of a solar minimum so activity on the sun has been lower and when we talk about activity on the sun we're talking about solar flares uh, geomagnetic storms that emit um, radiation and high energy particles out into the uh, solar system and it, it arrives on earth and, and impacts the um, ion sphere and um, therefore a lot of the technology we have can be impacted by it. Um, and now going forwards into the mid 2020s, um, we're going towards a more of a solar maximum. So we're more likely to see solar flares and more likely to see um, more severe, I guess, events across um, the surface of the sun and therefore the higher risk of seeing impacts uh, on Earth. So Kev, what, what does that actually do for us? What, what, what problems does that cause us then? What, what does it do for me? It really reaches at my inner geek. This <laughs> I love all this kind of stuff. It, it's great. Um, so uh, aviation has become more aware of some of the impacts of, of space weather and um, Many people will be asking, you know, what what is this space weather? And there's some really good Met Office have got some really good resources on their website, which give you an overview. There's also a really good podcast um, uh, in our time on the BBC Sounds. There's a really good episode on that on space weather that's worth a listen for anybody that, that's interested. Um, and, and airlines are becoming more aware of, of of some of these these impacts. So, you know, we use a lot of space based um a technology gps that kind of thing um, and satellites can be impacted by space weather power grids can be uh, impacted by space weather and it's about um, building more resilience to these these events so the the met office have, have got a space weather center which is based uh, at exeter and they work closely with their colleagues in in uh, in colorado in the us to do space weather forecasts and and i guess the, the most kind of obvious thing that space weather does to the public is is what causes the aurora so you know you often see lots of wonderful shots of aurora borealis um when that when that when that's visible sometimes from the north of the uk um and that's kind of the most obvious obvious effect but it but it can have you know as i say effects on power on um how high aircraft will fly due to some of the, the impacts of that so it's a fascinating area um i know some of my colleagues if they're listening they're listening they know I go on about space weather art, but it's something that's that's becoming more of an interest to aviation. Kind of following on from the volcanic ash. So when we had the you know the, the unpronounceable Icelandic volcano that erupted, um, in fact there's a there's a good altitude uh, on that with Jacob Young hosting that that they've got somebody from Iceland that pronounces it beautifully on there. But you know that was that really was a, a shock to aviation that the kind of size of impact uh, that, that that volcano had and the the, the knock-on effects of, of the ash. And I think what what we've tried to do as an organisation. And the Met Office are doing now. They've got this the, the space weather capability, is get ahead of that. Let people understand what the impacts might be. You know, we get twice daily forecasts from the Met Office of, of what's going on on the sun. As Emma said, we're we're starting to come into solar maximum. There's been a number of active sunspots recently that have admitted emitted some some big flares. So it's it's raising that awareness and making sure that that the industry is ready to manage any impact that we see from it. And it's funny you should mention volcanoes because we're going to start going to some of the questions that we've had sent in and we've had a couple about volcanoes. So we've had one that says, although it's not weather related uh, in the main, but it obviously does 
relate in a little way, um, the likes of a volcanic eruption, will the Met Office control this uh, or call the shots on go or no go for grounding flights and things like that? So um, I'll, I'll take that one and just say no. The, the Met Office are very good, but that's not their job. That's our job. So they will tell us what's going on. And in fact, things have developed quite a little way because there's a second question saying what about the volcanic ash Iceland that happened in, in Europe in 2010? And I'm going to have a go because I went to Iceland not long after and they said it was Eyjafjallajökull. Ooh, something yeah, like that. that so that wasn't yeah, too bad I think that. so hopefully that's that's not too bad and anybody who speaks Icelandic is now not going to hate me um but back in those days we didn't know a huge amount about the way volcanic ash works and we tended to literally just ground everything and initially we did stop everything didn't we but these days I think we're much more nuanced about it aren't we we get volcanic if a volcano goes off we get some volcanic ash reports from the Met Office now don't we Emma that tell us where things are going to be yeah we um use a specific dispersion model to um, use the observations that we get from the Icelandic Met Service on the ash and, and what they observe and we pop that into our model and we get an output of, of ash concentration and how that is um, flowing in the atmosphere at different levels um, and we share that with yourselves to help you with your decision making um, and also you know airlines as well can, can use that information to support them. Yeah, and Kevin, I'm right in thinking, Ada, that the rules changed because in those days we hadn't much information and we literally just stopped everything because we thought this is a safety problem. Aircraft ingest things into their engines and then their engines might stop. There's a famous case of a British Airways flight years and years ago over flying Indonesia that lost all four of its engines, wasn't there? And that, you know, eventually became a huge glider and then managed to land and there's books about it and all sorts. But these days we're a bit more sophisticated than that and we're now um, allowing the airlines much more freedom about decision about where they fly and how they fly. And we just try to make sure that our sectors are controlled. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, that that that's right. And I I, I was I was I'm old enough to be around when the uh, and, and doing a similar role when when that that a volcano that you beautifully pronounce. You think being Welsh, I would cope with lots of those consonants together, wouldn't you? But I would I wouldn't have been brave enough to attack that. Um, but yes, and I think a, a, an important thing to to kind of point out as well, I think, is that you know we're an air navigation service provider, so it's not our airspace to close or open. We 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 don't we don't do that. That's that's down to the civil aviation authority that would that would do that. What we would do is set you know what we think is a is a safe capacity of flights to fly through that airspace, and we would work you know e even even in the event when it was when it was kind of stuff we'd not experienced before. We were working with the Met Office who were providing us with these ash, ash charts. We were working with the CAA and the regulator to look at what the impact was. Um, and, it, and it was an evolving picture because, um, you know, we were having to work with, again, you know, things don't stop at the, the country borders. So we were having to work with the Irish really closely on how they were going to manage things like Dublin arrivals and overflights in, in, in Irish airspace and also down down into, into Europe as it dispersed. And, you know, so um, the, the Met Office are one of the, the, the volcanic ash advisory centres in, in, in the world that, that give volcanic ash forecasts. And we keep a really close eye on um, the Icelandic Met Office website that that tracks because they have, you know it's a massively seismic uh, seismically active part of the world. Uh, keep an eye on on things that are going on there, and you know also on for Eurocontrol they monitor. You know, Etna is another one that's quite active, um, uh, but they they monitor and if there's any kind of warnings, aviation warnings that that get put out for volcanoes, then then they track them as well. So we're much more. Um, aware of the impact that it could have and also more prepared in terms of what we would need to do should should we be faced with a, an event like that again. 
Yeah, hopefully we don't have to deal with too many of those in my time here. <laughs> no. Don't need to be doing all that. OK, we've had uh, another question in from someone at Nav Canada, actually. Does the jet stream impact your operations? Uh, if so, how and uh, how do you forecast it? Well, I can say very definitely yes. <laughs> it does impact us quite definitely. Um, Emma, tell us about how you forecast about the jet stream and what information you give us. Yeah, um, we provide um, Kevin's team a seven day forecast in terms of um, what the most efficient and effective uh, flight path or routing it, let's say, between two um, major airports, um, one based in Europe, one based in North America. And we do that both eastbound and westbound. Um, and we provide that to them daily so that they they know what the most likely um, routing is going to be. And they can then put that into their their own um, tools and systems and, and create um, certain tracks or, or paths that are most likely that that aircraft will follow. Yeah, yeah so Kevin, the, tell us about the tracks. Yeah, so the, the, this is not my area of expertise. In fact, J, Jacob Young, who I said was on a previous one, is, is the expert on this. But we have, we have um, most of the airspace structure across Europe is fixed. So you, you, you go from point A to point B to point C, and that doesn't change on a day by day basis. But across the North Atlantic, um, you know, the, the, the jet stream, which is this strong um, uh, wind in the upper atmosphere that, that changes and, and, and determines a lot of, of what our weather's going to be. And we try and plot on a daily basis the routes across the North Atlantic. Now, the, the winds come from, uh, come across the Atlantic from, from America to, to the UK and to Europe. So coming eastbound, the air, aircraft like to get the most optimal um, jet stream winds they can and they can be very strong they can be 150 knots or more um, and that's why you know when you're flying from the US to Europe and the UK your flight time you, you've hardly had time to you know put your meal down and, and get a few get a few hours sleep and you suddenly you're arriving whereas going the other way you're going against the wind so airlines like to avoid the strongest winds that that they can get going westbound so those routes do change on a daily basis and the impact of that is not just on on the UK because you imagine if if a lot if the 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 preferred route is is up, up to the north, say over Iceland and then to Newfoundland and, and into the US that way. That takes a lot of European traffic through the UK, up through kind of the Lake District into Scottish airspace and out onto the onto the ocean. Whereas if the, the preferred route is kind of more over Southern Ireland and, and out onto the Atlantic that way, that'll take some European traffic through France and then through um, over, over kind of London, high level over London and then over, over Wales and out to the west. So that can have a massive impact on where we need to supply capacity in our network. And, and that's, again, the beauty of working so closely with the Met Office having this, this data available is that we can start to see kind of seven seven days out where this demand is going to be and we kind of set up our our capacity um, to, to deliver again uh, against that. Um, and and the, the other thing about the, the, the jet stream is on a, on a really strong jet, if, it, if it's if it's quite small in terms of its lateral extent, it can be quite bumpy. So if you're coming across the North Atlantic, it's a really strong jet. It can be quite turbulent because if you're just on the edge of that, that where that core of the, the high winds are, it can be quite, we can have a bit of turbulence there. So again, that's another, another thing that impacts the capacity of the North Atlantic. 
Yeah. And for me as a controller, that makes a real difference as to literally how quick the planes are going to arrive, especially yeah. first yeah. thing in the morning. You know, we have that, that rush over from America that all want to land first thing in the morning. Um, and, you know, the, the general public, uh, and rightly so and understandably so, don't particularly want noise over their house at half past three in the morning. So we try really hard to make sure that the plans are in place, that you know, aircraft come in and land according to the the local noise restrictions, and working with the airports all the time to minimise noise for the for the residents locally. Um, and you know, the aircraft are going to fly and be affected by these wind conditions, and we're trying to make sure that we optimise the routes that they can fly on, so they burn the least fuel, but that they arrive at the best time for them to then not have a delay and be able to come in and land, and not be causing any more environmental impact than they need to, because that's really important to us as well. So uh, yeah, that's a big deal. And then of course, everyone wants to go out the other way and that will make a, a preferred bias on departure. So when you come to sort of the middle of the day and everyone wants to go back towards the Americas and, and that way, we're then looking at which routes are going to be most heavily laden for the day. And, you know, sometimes aircraft want to go straight out to the west. Sometimes they want to go more to the southwest. Sometimes they're going to go north. And we've then got to manage the, the flow of traffic in those sectors to, to allow as many aircraft through as we possibly can, but in a safe manner and make sure that we've not got too many planes in the same place at the same time. So that, that's kind of, a you know, a really important thing to us. I've uh, got another couple of quick questions to get through. So I've got one here saying uh, it's a really interesting webinar. Thank you very much. We're, we're glad you enjoyed it so far. Um, you fly commercially out of Bristol. Do controllers have the ability to overlay their weather radar so they can see what and where you're likely to be requesting as a pilot? Um, sadly not, um, but actually with quite good reason. We've got um, the forecasting things that Emma gives us, which are great, and we do have a weather radar picture near us on the console, but we deliberately don't overlay that because we very much um, trust the pilots to ask for what they need when they need it and only ask for what they need and we accommodate that within our plans when we can. The danger is that if the weather radar isn't giving us quite the picture we're expecting or we try to make you avoid something that we can see and it then puts you into something worse that we might not have picked up on our weather radar that that could put you into a greater problem so we we don't run with that as things stand at the moment but we've got lots of bits around us that can help us so we do generally get a fairly good idea and so sometimes as well we'll talk to pilots and say, oh, you know, the previous colleague on this route said they needed to go right, let me know if that's going to be a problem or if I give you this heading now, will you be able to fly it for the next 10 to 15 miles so that I know I can make a new separation with a different aircraft and, and manage the way that you're going to fly. So uh, that's that bit. Uh, what else have we got? Why at London Heathrow is the flow rate uh, during fog slow to increase when it's lifted significantly? Uh, and that's come to us from colleagues at British Airways. Um, well, <laughs> Kev, let's talk a little bit about how long flow restrictions take when we put them on, how long they take to have an effect and what and how off, how in advance we need to think about those. Yeah, OK, so um, so flow measures, we can only apply these measures to flights originating in Europe. We can't we can't apply a measure that uh, applies to flights and um, coming from the Far East or, or the US. It's, it's really across uh, a wide part of uh, of Europe. Now, clearly, we can only delay a flight when it's on the ground. We can't once it's airborne, it's coming. We can't we can't stop it at that point. So we have to apply the measure uh, when it's on the ground. So thinking about you know our position, our ge geographical position in Europe, and the size of Europe, some of the flying times from some of the um, uh, cities into into London, for example, can be quite long. They can be three or four hours. So really, you need to try and catch the aircraft and catch the the regulation at an appropriate time, so you can capture as many flights as possible. The other problem if you if you apply it too late is that you've got a smaller pool of flights to to 
to manage to, to manipulate and what happens then is rather than 100 flights having two minutes delay you have you know two flights with 100 minutes delay and we absolutely want to want to avoid that so we have to apply it at the, at the appropriate time. Equally, we don't want loads of aircraft holding in the skies unnecessarily. So getting that, the time of application is, is absolutely crucial. And we've done a lot of work with the Met Office um, on that. In terms of lifting the rate, again, we've got to factor into the, the, the plan that there are aircraft that are coming anyway. So we they're, then they're, they're extra on top of the rate. Um, and also the confidence that the, once the fog lifts, it is going to disperse. So sometimes, you know, it lifts into low cloud and everything's, yeah, great, the fog's gone. And then, you know, it, it starts to come back again. And we, we've, all, we've all been in those situations in the past. And, and, and so we, we've got to be confident that the trend is that it's going to improve um, and, and, and stay that way. So we do react and, and manipulate the rates as quickly as we as we can. The other things that we do, which are, are kind of slightly technical elements, is that even though we've got a rate in place, we might call on some extra aircraft. So if we've got yeah. aircraft nearby that we know are ready to go, they've got the doors shut, they've got the people on, they're, they're kind of on the taxi, we're ready to go. We, my team, will phone the airfield up and say, right, bring that that aircraft on so we can fill that fill that gap so we you know as we said through, throughout this you know safety is the absolute priority but we we hate applying regulations to flights so we we, we really try and optimize um the network sometimes it's not obvious why we're doing what we're doing um but you know we we really try and use some of these advanced techniques to to, to get the best um supply of aircraft into an airfield Absolutely, absolutely. A uh, couple of last quick questions. With the MET network relying on hundreds or even thousands of sensors providing accurate live information, do we also get feeds automatically from aircraft in flight? Do I, any of you know? I know I get information from pilots, so I'll ask them and they'll tell me what's happening. But Emma, do you get information fed down? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, the information that aircraft provide us is invaluable because we don't get much vertical information of the atmosphere. Quite often we, you know, to, for us to get that, we send out balloons into into various locations across the UK with weather radar, sen weather sensors on them, um, or we see it from above from satellites. But aircraft on, uh, they have sensors on them that capture wind information, wind, wind profile information and temperature information. You, you may see it sometimes when you're you're on a, a an airplane that has a, a TV in front of the seat, and there'll be a section showing you speed, um, wind temperature, and um, uh, well, temperature and winds. And that's basically the similar sort of information that gets fed directly to the Met Office, and that goes into our um, forecast model in our seat computer and helps with the forecast. So yeah, definitely. Brilliant. And so last thing to just round up then, uh, we've been asked, are there any particular good apps or websites that a normal person, because obviously we're not normal people at all, that a normal person could use, <laughs> a non-aviation based person could use to see the weather, um, maybe perhaps better than, oh, I better not mention brands, that um, certain other weather apps that people may have seen. And anything that either of you two would recommend from a weather perspective? Well, I know what Emma's going to say, because she, yeah. she gets sacked if she said anything else. I'm sure. Go on, Emma, you say your bit, you say your bit. <laughs> Yeah, there's a Met Office app. It's brilliant. Um, you can pick whatever location you would like in the UK. Um, it gives you information not only about kind of pictures and stuff, but it gives you actually quantifiable information like humidity, um, wind direction, um, sunrise, sunset, um, UV levels. 
Um, there's also a radar and there's also a tab for the weather warnings that are in place. So I definitely recommend that. If you're an aviation end user and need uh, aviation forecasts, for example, TAFs um, or um, certain products like the volcanic ash advisories, then the Met, Met Office also has network weather resilience. Um, so if you, if you, you know, search network weather resilience Met Office, it, it will be available on any search engine. Um, and it's also compatible for desktop, tablet and mobile. Perfect. I think that's a brilliant note to wrap up on. Uh, I'm afraid that's all the time, the, all the things we've got time for today. Uh, my huge thanks go to the lovely Emma and the lovely Kev who've been absolutely brilliant today. Thank you to everyone who's been watching us. Hope you found it interesting and fun. I certainly have. It's my first go at it and I've really enjoyed it. So uh, hopefully that's that's been good for you too. If anybody's got any feedback or any ideas for any future topics they would like to be talked about on Altitude, then please let us know. You can email into us at info at nats.co.uk or you can tweet us at, at Nats if that's your thing. Um, keep an eye on the Nats social channels for details of the next show. Thanks very much for listening and goodbye. This episode of Altitude was brought to you by Nats, the UK's leading air traffic control company. Shuttle to Lima. Space East, Shuttle to Lima.